So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. In today's episode, we're going to explore pressure. It creates champions and chokers in equal measure. And I've definitely been both. I want to take you back to the 19th of January, 2002. England's cricket team were on a tour of India and their first game was at one of the biggest sporting stadiums in the world, Eden Gardens in Calcutta. This pressure moment absolutely changed both my career and my philosophy about handling pressure. I played in lots of professional cricket games at Lords and various stadiums around the UK, 25, 28,000 people. This stadium held 120,000 people. And in the days leading up to this first game of England's tour, there were riots in the street as people tried to get tickets in a frenzy. So this game felt like it was bigger than any game I'd played in before. And it was a massive opportunity to deliver under pressure. So it was quite interesting to think that when I started to bowl, I remember my captain, Nasu Hussain, throwing me the ball and telling me to come and bowl at Sachin Tendulkar and Varinda Sewa, two of the world's most destructive batsmen at the time. And because I'd been practicing at Gloucestershire in the time, uh, in the uh, indoor training centre with some music on, um, a cone, sort of a target down on the floor, I'd got this little routine in my head with the music, a particular song and hitting this spot, hitting this spot. And I'd repeatedly delivered that on my own in this indoor training centre and it had become ingrained. So my bowling, when I got into this pressure cooker, was all about landing that first ball and being able to deliver under pressure. And I actually did it. I stayed in control, stayed calm. First ball landed, and I actually got a wicket and had quite a good good first part of the game. Then the second part of the game, actually the pressure started to build. The run rate needed chasing down. The run rate was building up. Um, you know, we, we got off to a decent start, but then I was batting with our hero in our team, Freddie Flintoff. And I'll never forget the noise was just incredible around the stadium. And I called for a, a second run and unfortunately Freddie didn't make it. I ran him out and it was a horrible moment where I realized that I'd given England a big setback running out one of my own teammates. So at that moment, I was in the stadium, 120,000 people, the Indian legends in the opposition swarming around me and I was just left to my own thoughts. I'm going to lose this game for England. What have I done? What's Freddie going to say? This is going to be a nightmare. And then as the new batsman came out, instead of being rational and calm, the ball came down and it may as well have been a hand grenade. I didn't see it. I just played a massive slog, um, completely missed it, got out. And then as I was walking back to the pavilion, getting pelted with onion barges, from the local school kids, I realised that I'd missed this moment. I got emotionally hijacked. I'd played a stupid shot, a, a childish shot, and I'd you know spoken to myself as if I couldn't play the game. And I was right. I'd made a massive mistake. So, so this thing really was pivotal for me. I, I didn't get beaten by India. I didn't get beaten by Harbhajan Singh's Dusra. I beat myself. I beat myself under pressure, and that was the thing that. I couldn't come to terms with it. It was my biggest regret. So rather than wallow in it, I actually started, it sparked off a, a sort of a curiosity about 
what were the champions thinking? What were these elite performers that were bulletproof under pressure? What was going on in their mind that was so different to me? So I started to study a master's degree in sports psychology, and that led me to my second career, which was with Sporting Edge about coaching this winning mindset and, and understanding it in high performers, both in sport and in business. So through that process, I've been able to work with and interview over 100 top performers around the world. And, and it turns out that they have self-doubts as well. They feel this pressure and they worry about failing, but they're able to manage it and thrive under pressure where I failed. So I really think that the way we handle pressure is a defining characteristic of our career. We'll either be able to transcend these steps up in, in performance that we need, or it will knock us back and we'll, we'll sit back in our comfort zone. So it's really interesting when we start to think about the role that pressure plays in our performance and the role that pressure plays on our mind and body as well. And that's something we're going to explore in today's episode. Um, and some of the context for this is that factors like novelty, uncertainty and uncontrollability, those three drivers can, can stimulate the stress response. Because quite simply, our brain wasn't built for the modern day. Our brain was built 50,000 years ago, uh, back in the caveman's day, and it hasn't had an upgrade since. It's not an iPhone. So this you know, system that we're working with was primed for our short-term survival. It was long, long periods of calm where we'd have been hunter-gatherers. And then very occasionally that saber-toothed tiger came and you know, provided a threat to our lives. And that then ramped up this fight and flight response where the primitive uh, limbic system, the amygdala, sensed the danger in our brain, uh, sensed the danger in our environment, and then our sympathetic nervous system jumped to our aid and produced lots of adrenaline and cortisol into our bloodstream so that it then kicked off uh, this sort of chain reaction of events into our uh, you know, our heart rate elevated as we needed to shunt the blood away from our um, digestive system, for example. Uh, there's no point carrying excess weight. We want to go to the loo when we feel nervous to jettison that so we can run fast. Uh, the blood moves away from our stomach and towards our major muscles for locomotion to get us to run as fast as we can. So that's why we get those butterflies in our stomach. The blood leaves our hands because we don't want to lose blood in battle with this wild animal. So the blood goes back to our vital organs and we get these sweaty palms. And our vision narrows as there would have been one predator there as the real threat. So we lose this ability to read the game in sport or, or to think creatively in the business environment. These are some of the physiological and um, psychological responses to novelty, uncertainty, uncontrollability in the environment when the stakes get raised. So we often think about when it comes to stress, this balance between, if you imagine a, a seesaw with the right hand side being the perceived challenge that we see in the working environment, the job that we've got to do, the challenge that's in front of us. And on the left hand side of the pivot, the perceived coping skills that we've got do we, do we really think that we can cope in this environment? Are we confident? And if those things are in balance, like we're in the zone and we're focused, then that's all great. But the problem comes that when novelty, uncertainty and uncontrollability start to raise the right hand side and this perceived challenge that we're up against starts to elevate now and get catastrophized into something much more significant. And it's no longer a healthy challenge. It's actually become a threat. Now, where this used to be a threat to our lives and the saber-toothed tiger stimulated that stress response and we had to run or fight to, to save our lives, we have exactly the same physiological response now, but it's a threat um, to our self-esteem, to our professional reputation, um, you know, to, to what people think of as that judgment and shame that comes. And we have exactly that same primitive response. So it's really interesting to think that if these high pressure moments are there for us to embrace and to take on and to thrive through, you know, we really need to understand both our wiring, our psychology, our physiology as we start to move through this and try and override this evolutionary idea of our brain keeping us safe. 
Um, you know, this this idea of our comfort zone, wanting to park in the same spot every day at work, wanting to do the same projects because we're comfortable showing our expertise. You know, the pressure starts to come in when we get that request to do a public speech or we get that big challenge or we get asked a, a difficult question in a boardroom where we might feel like we're going to get exposed. So instead of feeling calm, slow, deliberate and focused, we start to panic and, and rush. And that's when our breathing and, and we get those physical sensations. So really interesting for us to think about this preparatory response, this, this you know, preparation for a fight and flight response, which we have um, you know, in our bodies. But we often see when working with elite sports teams going to a, a rugby, uh, you know, a game at Twickenham or a World Cup cricket match with a team. I've seen teams on the bus, you know, players that are normally quite quiet get really noisy. Um, players that are usually jovial go really, you know, quiet. And it really affects people's behaviour, the pressure getting to them. But it's usually on the bus. It's usually the night before because that's the time when things are out of your control. And actually, as as players start to get out onto the pitch, they start to get into their kit and run around, kick a ball or throw a ball around, then this is when they get out of their own heads and get into action. And that's really what this is all about. How do we embrace this pressure, this question of whether we're going to be able to perform and how do we move forward into it to deliver our best game in spite of the pressure? So it'd be really interesting to think about as you listen to this podcast what the examples of emotional hijack have been for you. Maybe you've been asked to do a speech. Maybe you got promoted into a new job or maybe you had to cover for somebody at short notice. Maybe it was a sports match or a, you know, a referee's decision went against you and you got uh, into this panic mode. Or maybe it was the flashing blue lights behind you on the motorway as you were driving along quite calmly. So have a think about this sensation and the mindset and, and physical response that you get to pressure. Because in a way, we've got to make sure that rather than our brain keeping us safe, you know, my brain in India was trying to keep me safe and take me away from the pressure. So what did I do? I rushed a stupid shot. Um, I got out and I ended up in a really safe place, which uh, was the pavilion. But actually, you can't win a game of cricket for your country in the pavilion. So you have to be able to be brave and courageous to slow things down in the heat of battle and stay with the pressure to be able to deliver your best game. So, you know, I think the first starting point for us to think about is what goes on in our head. And for me, when I started to explore this topic, all about self-talk, I actually thought that me berating myself was just a puff of smoke that would waft away and there was no harm done. It was just something that only I knew about. But as I started to learn more from the neuroscientists and reading about things like neuroplasticity, I learned that our brain was actually changing based on what we think and what we do. So this first insight from our digital library, the performance zone of all the interviews I've done over the last 10 years, I'm going to search through it now and find something on the neuroscience of thinking habits. So I can see here that we've got Professor Vin Walsh, the, the head of human brain research at UCL in London. And this is a fascinating insight about how our brain starts to create these structures with the input we give it and our own thinking styles in the moment of pressure. The brain, in one sense, doesn't know the difference between an action and a thought. It's still all brain activity. So thinking things also creates changes in brain structure, changes in brain connectivity, and changes in the speed of the of, of, of the connectivity between different areas. So if you are thinking, let's say, I can't do X, I can't throw this ball, I can't um I can't um I can't lift this weight, I can't climb this wall, whatever it, it might be, by thinking that you can't do it, you're actually activating associations between your reward pathways, the decision-making pathways, um, your planning pathways, and your action pathways. So I wouldn't think that when you do something, you overwrite your, um, your thinking patterns. Your thinking patterns are part of what you are 
you are doing. And the more you think something and the more you practice something, I'm, I'm using thought and action in, in, as, as one thing in the brain here, um, the more you build up the uh, connectivity between the areas that perform these tasks. And if you, if you have a pattern of negative thoughts, you'll eventually end up with what you might consider to be a kind of a, a broadband connection between you know, negative thought and, and, and failure. But it's definitely within your power to change that. So isn't that fascinating? I was amazed to hear that what I was thinking in my own head, that sort of inner critic, that inner voice, that negative judgment, wasn't just affecting me in the moment. It was actually creating these pathways in my brain that would be tomorrow's instinct. So when the stimulus to face a fast bowler or get up and do a public speech or whatever it might be, if I train myself to try and avoid those and say I was no good in those situations, then tomorrow's instinct would be primed by those pathways that I'd laid down. So this is so important that the inner game or the inner battle is the first one we've got to win. Forget our opposition, forget a promotion or a job interview. First of all, we've got to win in our own mind and, and win against ourselves because if we hijack ourselves, then we're never going to be able to perform. So it's really interesting to think about that and, and stop eroding our confidence and our coping skills so that we can enjoy these moments and actually try and relax and perform into them. So the job is to quieten this inner critic. And, it, and it's not about positive thinking. You know, I'm, I'm not going to get my fringe back in, in no matter how much positive thinking I have. You know, it's about being realistic about what you're trying to do and not just being positive. But it's definitely about think, turning this negative thinking into useful thinking. So if we just let that negative voice go unchecked, it's, been, it's like being sent into a courtroom for a crime um, with a judge and a prosecution, but no defense. You know, you're, you're on trial and you've been told you're no good at something and everybody's there to say why there's evidence that you crap at it. The judgment comes you know, from the judge and the jury, but there's silence when it comes to the defence. And the defence is our track record of experience. Maybe we've, um, you know, we can find balance through our experiences. We've, we've done well in the past. We've had praise from other people. We've shown competence before. We've helped other people. We've got experience of doing these things in a similar way in other games or in other, other business situations. And under pressure, it's very easy to cut the links to those. But actually, we've got to stay connected to that confidence bank account, that um, track record of success that allows us to bolster our coping skills rather than just sort of emotionally catastrophize, you know, what, what's coming up. And, you know, if I think back to some of the moments when I've made this mistake, it's almost like you know, our thinking chains or, or ripples in a little pond, if you imagine that a pebble drops in and the thing might be, you know, for me in India that night, it was, you know, you've run out Freddie Flint off and then the, the automatic sort of cascade of thinking chains then happens. Oh, no, we're going to lose this game. It's all my fault. Um, I'll never play for England again. Uh, I might never play cricket again. Uh, you know, I'm going to have to sell my house and my wife's going to leave me and it's the end of the world. And very quickly, within about 10 seconds, you've, you know, turned this one tiny mistake into a, you know, global disaster. And, and interestingly, interviewing a lot of the top champions and, and neuroscientists, a lot of very senior and very successful people still have that inner critic. In fact, it's part of what fuels them to uh, have an attention to detail and have a great work ethic. But in these moments of performance, we've definitely got to be able to swap out that negative cascade and swap out something useful. So this is where I'm talking about not being overly positive thinking, but definitely swapping out the negative film script and swapping something in that's got a, a better ending. So that idea of, you know, you've made a mistake. OK, uh, we could lose the game from here. Well, we could do, but you've also been in this position before. You've won games from this position before. So focus on the next ball. If we do well in the next over, we could get momentum back. If we, had a, if we have a good half an hour, that allows us to then rebuild some, some pressure back on the, the opposition. And from that, then we could go on and win it. And if we win it from this position, this would be brilliant for my reputation. And I could definitely have a great career, you know, in the future. So 
we, we often think about winning and losing as these binary judgments, the outcomes. And, and we've often got to track back if we think about winning as W-I-N. I want to win, but I've got to ask myself in the moment, what's important now? W-I-N. So instead of thinking, what are the press going to say tomorrow about the mistake that I've made? That's out of my control. Remember, controllability is one of the key things, our antidote to stress. So I can control my thinking and my behavior in the next minute. How do I regain control of this situation in a, in a meeting room or on a sports field? What's important now? What's important next? Because if we want to win the game, we've got to win the moment. And that's where it all begins. So I think we've got to start thinking about what's the trigger? So maybe as you're starting to listen to this, you're thinking about the kind of things that that stress you, the buttons you, that get pressed, that, that get you emotional, because, you know, the awareness is absolutely critical, because if we become aware of what our stress triggers are, then we can start to create the way we approach them. And, and I often think that the best teams in the world and the best individuals in the world are the ones that don't pretend pressure is never going to affect them. But instead, they discuss it openly, they show vulnerability and they proactively plan to embrace pressure and, and to you know overcome it. So it's absolutely critical because with a lot of the sports teams, we might be thinking about removing the novelty. Remember, that was one of those other key stresses by simulating. So it may be that, say, we're going into a penalty situation and we want to visualize that, that actually my shot is going top left, right in the corner. And I can picture myself putting the ball down, walking back six steps. Or it might be that I can visualize myself on stage in the company conference, actually delivering slowly, calmly the first few lines of my speech. Um, and that, that ability to see the, the pressure in front of you and embrace it is absolutely critical to avoid that emotional hijack. So there's been lots of theories around um, IQ and intelligence and EQ with emotional intelligence. But what about PQ? What about our ability to understand how we respond to pressure? What are the things that threaten us and how do we respond to it? Because with more and more disruption in the corporate environment that I've seen with our client base, pressure is going to be a constant. So being able to understand it, to, to break it down into simpler chunks, to rationalize it and to keep moving forward and deliver, you know, brilliant, calm skills and basics. Nothing flash. That's one of the, the hazards, really. We've got to keep it simple and keep moving forward. That is definitely a competitive advantage and helping the individuals around us to stay comfortable in this really uncomfortable space. So it's time for a question. Remember, you can send me a simple voice note or an email through to me at hello at sportingedge.com uh, and we'll get you onto the show. This is our first question and it comes from Lisa. Hi, Jeremy. I notice my breathing gets really fast when I get nervous, like right now, and I'm sitting at my desk. So why do I feel like that? It's a great question. And this second insight from our Performance Zone library is from... Dear Harris, who's a, a medical expert and a psychiatrist from Washington State University in the US. And she talks about this fight and flight response in a little bit more detail and this physiological response we also get. One of the most ancient and wonderful parts of our brain is uh, what most people think of as our fight or flight, right? So your amygdala is one part of this amazing network, right? And it had a very specific design and, and it's beautifully executed. It takes in a tiny piece of information, checks in with big memories, and then makes you do something significant right away. So this is part of the wiring that's wonderful if you are someplace where there are lions. Every time the grass moves, there could be a lion, right? So your brain takes in all this information, but it says grass movement, possibly lion, your memories, and then it makes you run. Wonderful for that setting. But it's designed to take over the brain. It's designed to shut everything down and just move. So the problem is when you put it in a modern day stress situation, it functions the same. But the really important piece is to think of it like a gate, that once it closes, it is shutting off the thinking, the front part of your brain that we all love, right, is no longer functioning. And it takes about 20 minutes to reopen the gate. So during that time, you have less access to 
thinking, discerning, planning part of your brain. So if you are in that situation, you, it's so reliable, you can set a cell phone timer. Having a break to get back to the place where you're using that full spectrum of activities in that front part of your brain is a much more effective strategy than continuing to fire and worry when you just don't have access to that part of the brain. The ideal situation is that you completely remove yourself from the stressor. But let's face it, some of these decision-making tasks are not like that, right? So if you can switch to a, even a, a simple motor task that's pleasing, right? So let's say you're in a meeting and you're taking two golf balls and twisting them in your hand, right? You've switched your brain into that task mode and you've offloaded a bunch of decision-making stuff. You'll appear thoughtful, <laughs> right? You can walk carefully in a meeting. But yes, giving yourself a break from what's triggering that gate to close. People are very reluctant to do this for interesting reasons. They don't want to take a break. But as long as you signal it socially of, I'm going to go for a walk, I'm going to think about this, I'm going to do whatever, then you can still take the break without feeling like you're not doing the, the stressful thing. So really interesting to think about that. And when I look back at that night in India, my gate had definitely slammed shut. Um, I was definitely working with that full reptilian brain and the executive function had completely gone. But it's interesting, this idea that um, our, our sort of primitive brain is keeping us safe. Uh, we can't think with this executive function, but that's often what we need to do to solve a problem creatively in a pressure situation. So this idea of almost getting out of our own head by shifting the focus to a physical action. So, you know, we know that uh, the saber-toothed tiger or the lion aren't really there. It's just maybe somebody saying something in a meeting or an email coming in that shocked us or a colleague that's made us angry. So these threats, again, aren't something to our lives. It's, it's a threat to our self-esteem and our um, you know, our reputation in that moment. So that's why we get this physiological response. So it's really interesting to think about this link between mind and body and how ideally we'd start to rationalize that maybe there isn't a threat. Maybe this isn't the end of our career. Maybe this isn't a saber-toothed tiger in reality, but that can be quite hard to do if we've crossed this emotional threshold. So we can actually start to see this link between um, our physiology and our brain. So we know that we've got to try and switch off uh, this, this stress response. So we know that um, the rapid breathing is there to shunt the blood around our body into our muscles, but it can be quite hard to switch off our brain. So one of the ways we can do, because we know our, our vagus nerve is linking our brain and our lungs and our heart, so that, that's got both sides of this equation. We've got the, the sort of psychological element and the physiological element. So we can either switch it off through our thinking, which we've already said is quite hard, but we can switch it off through our body as well. So let's try uh, a little experiment. Now, this is going to seem a little bit weird, but I'm going to do it. Um, if you're in somewhere private and or you're on a train and no one's really watching or you're out on a dog walk, then go for this because you'll start to feel it. We need to try and simulate the stress response. Now, short of me getting somebody to chase you or, or getting a, a, a siren on, uh, it'd be pretty difficult, but I'm going to do it through our breathing. So um, what I want you to do is I'll, I'll show you what to do and then I want you to follow. So don't worry if you look a little bit weird. It's only for a few seconds. So for five seconds, we're going to do some shallow breathing where really rapid, shallow breathing. If you really want to simulate this stress response, you can dart your eyes around as well, which will add to it. But let me just try it. So it's really short, shallow breathing, which is replicating what happens in the stress response. So that hopefully didn't sound too weird. But if you get that sensation, even within a couple of seconds, you can feel that there's a bit of panic, a bit of pressure, almost like someone's chasing you down. So now that's the physiology, our lungs and our heart working faster. And it sent a signal back to our brain to say there's a problem, there's a threat in the environment. So we need to sort of uh, raise the threat level and, and get the body set up for, for the fight and flight response. But now if we do the opposite and take that really slow, deep diaphragmatic breathing where it really fills out our chest. Imagine if we can just do that for four seconds in. 
and just hold and four seconds out. So again, hopefully even just within just a few seconds, you can feel the contrast between the shallow, uh, rapid breathing of the uh, stress response and the deep diaphragmatic breath, which comes from that calmness. And, and also reading about the Navy SEALs and some of their stress um, training, that they've got this box breathing technique of four seconds in, four seconds hold, four seconds out and four seconds hold. So if you imagine visualizing that sequence going round a, a square, that's their box breathing, which centers them, takes them out of the psychology and the panic and the mind and the consequence and the outcome and the danger and back into the only thing that they can control, which is back into their breath, back into their physiology so that they can then get composed back to act through that pressure and change the game or change the situation. So your brain, when you switch into that calmer breath, that deeper diaphragmatic breath, starts to think, well, if you're breathing like that, the vagus nerve sends a signal back saying, well, it's really slow breath down here. So let me send that signal back up to the brain. And that reduces that stress response and that panic response. So we resume the chill out mode a little bit faster. So really interesting to think that how you can apply that in a situation yourself when you start feeling the chest tightening your you know your your heart rate rising that we can start to slow things down and actually regain control through that so you know sports psychology is one of the modern things neuroscience some of the latest you know scanning techniques tell us this but i remember my grand telling me to take a deep breath and and count to 10 so maybe there was some great wisdom in that but this is definitely what we see and when we work with elite sports um, players in these kind of environments, these high pressure moments, they're either going to be a hero or a villain. Now, we can talk about strategy. We can talk about technique. We can talk about all the things in the game, whether it's rugby, cricket, football, golf, whatever. But actually, it comes down to their mindset. So psychologists will try and get the players to switch off this scrutinizing self-talk, this negative inner voice. And let their instinct come through, almost like you're dialing down this negative voice and dialing the other one up. Again, I don't ever think you can get rid of the critic, um, but you've got to start to change your focus back to being in control. And sometimes with the enormity of the outcome, you know, the, the World Cup final, if you get this penalty or the prize money, if you hold this, um, you know, 18th putt. Uh, maybe just for a for a bet with your mates going into the clubhouse. So the panic and the pressure can be really high. We can actually make mistakes and beat ourselves. So remember, we're trying to distract ourselves back to away from the noise of the crowd, away from the scoreboard, away from the criticism or adulation of the fans and back to the process, back to the moment. So we need to focus on our steps, on our breathing on our routine, on our cues, on our simple plan of what we are going to do right now. Remember, what's important now? If I want to win, I've got to regain control of that moment and slow it down almost to the point where we're like an astronaut sort of bouncing across the surface of the moon. Our brain will want to speed up. Our body will want to speed up because they want to take us back to safety. They want us to get this out of the way as fast as we can, but we need to be slow and deliberate. Hi, I hope you're enjoying today's episode. I just wanted to introduce you to Sporting Edge's Winning Mindset program. It builds on many of today's topics and explores the six drivers which have emerged from our research into the psychology of high performance. We've distilled down the six strategies that separate the world's most successful people and have curated those into a digital coaching program so that you can develop them for your own career. As a professional cricketer, I always felt like my mindset was the biggest difference between my best and worst day, but we never spent any time developing it. That's why we've created this flexible 30-day program for entrepreneurs, execs, and sports coaches. We've had over a thousand delegates through the program in recent years, with an average of 10 to 15% uplift in their confidence, resilience, and well-being. So visit sportingedge.com to join our next cohort. Performing like a pro starts by thinking like one. 
The Winning Mindset is a pioneering digital coaching program from Sporting Edge. You'll have access to world-class thinkers and performers who'll inspire you with daily five-minute micro-lessons to boost your confidence, resilience, and well-being. You'll learn from Olympians, neuroscientists, productivity, and well-being experts with bite-sized strategies to help you raise your game. The Winning Mindset. Find out more at www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com. I've had the privilege of working with some amazing sports stars around this kind of topic. And one of the most impressive is the legendary Australian cricketer Shane Warne. I've worked with him in the Indian Premier League and the Melbourne Stars. And in this particular interview insight from our performance zone, he gives us a great insight into how he thought under pressure when he was in a really high pressure moment in a World Cup semi-final. So listen to his story and let's start to pick out what, how he turned panic into a match-winning performance. I remember the 99 World Cup final. Um, we were in real trouble and I, the game was slipping away from us and I had to do something. I could feel myself a bit in fast forward. You know, the game, everything was happening so quickly, it was hard to take a step back. And I remember before I grabbed my over, I just took a couple of breaths, longer than I would normally take to deliver the ball. And I just focused in on what I had to do. Okay, what's my plan? How am I getting this guy out? I thought I asked myself, how am I getting him out? But okay, I'm going to try and get him to hit through mid-wicket. That's as simple as that. I'm not worried about the score. And it's very hard to do that. And... People talk about how do you get into that? How do you get into that zone? What is the zone? To me, the zone is 100% concentration on what you're about to do. And that is clearing your mind of everything, the crowd, everything. And not everyone can do that. I was very lucky that I, I could do that. I could compartmentalize about exactly what I had to do. And I found by asking myself the question when I was about to bowl, how am I getting this guy out? It's a pretty simple question. And that got back to all my plans. So one, I was patient. Two, I was taking my time. Three, I was sticking to my plan. I was keeping it really simple. Smile, away we went. I ended up taking two or three wickets and a few overs, and I got really pumped by it and started carrying on like it. I was, and the, I, I sort of dragged the rest of the team with me. And it wasn't something I was conscious about doing. As I just knew this is what we had to do right now. And, you know, it, it just, we happened, and it was against South Africa. We ended up having a tie. We went through the final. It was and a fantastic game. But, it was, that was something I was really proud of because, as you said, the question was, you know, did you feel yourself? And I did, but I actually overcame that. And that sort of helped me for the rest of my 10 years, 15 years after that, because it was just something I did. So a, a brilliant story and, and fascinating to listen to that back. So what did we hear? He slowed everything down, his heart rate. He said at the end he was starting to panic and, and move quickly. He slowed down. He took more time in his... Uh, preparation than he normally would. He took that controlling breath to reset his body. He reset his self-talk by asking that helpful question. What's important now? How do I get this player out? And he focused on his next action. And he didn't produce the most magical delivery of all time, which he's done in the past instinctively, but he tried to do brilliant basics. And I think that's one of the key things that when the pressure is at its highest, the champions don't necessarily raise their game, but the weaker opponents fall away and get hijacked and catastrophize and complicate things. But the champions deliver brilliant basics. So not only did he win that battle with himself, but he won the moment against his opposition and that helped him and his team stay calm. They won the semi-final, and then they went on to win the World Cup. So, so these moments are absolutely transformational, both for an individual and for the organization that they work in. So really interesting to think about how we can apply some of those elements that Shane Warne spoke about into our own life when we get under pressure to slow things down and to stop panicking and just do the brilliant, brilliant basics. What's important now? So it's time for another question and we're going to hear it now. Uh, hi, it's James. Uh, I've just been promoted in my job. Uh, and I've been told that I need to do presentations in front of like crowds, like 50 plus people. Uh, I hate speaking uh, in, in front of crowds. What can I do to overcome my fear? So again, let me go into our, um, it's a brilliant question. 
let me go into our performance zone library. We've got about 800 of these insights. I'm going to dive in. I know we've got some brilliant insights from communication experts. So let's see what we've got. So I can see here we've got a, a great insight from Lisa Orkson, who's a, a professional voice coach and um, speaking expert from RADA. She's a trainer and coach to politicians and actors, and she's got a great insight for us about reversing that pressure. We've spoken about judgment and the fear of failure. Well, Lisa's insight here helps us to take the pressure off ourselves in these kind of moments. One of the key things that happens for most people is they go into the inner critical voice. So the voice that says, oh my God, I wonder what people are thinking about me. Oh my gosh, am I going to be able to show them that I'm great at what I do? Will I get the pitch right? Will I be recognized for who I am and my expertise? And all that inner dialogue really gets in the way of people being present with their audience. And what the audience or the listener really wants is you focusing on them. So really, it's about the reverse psychology. It's about what's going on in the other person. How can I ensure that they get the message of what I'm communicating rather than, oh, my God, am I going to be good enough? You know, will they like what I say? Are they thinking this about me? I'm actually thinking, are they getting what I'm saying? How can I make sure that they understand the fullness of this talk or this specific expertise that I have? And am I seeing someone over there looking what I might, might interpret as being bored or looking disinterested or looking like they've got a question so they're looking quizzical can I focus on being able to enhance the answer so they really get what I'm saying so my focus is constantly on the audience I'm engaging engaging what's going on out there so I can best in a way flex my muscles to be able to meet their needs and when I'm really focusing on them I lose sight about me and my little worries and all my little insecurities and it becomes about them and that's where the power lies so again i love that insight because i know so many people are uh, sort of gripped by fear with this idea of um you know public speaking and, and it's almost like the audience is six you know 16 feet tall we're standing on the stage and we're shrinking down to two feet tall and they're they're sort of overburdening us and and paralyzing us. But actually, if you remember, our brain's trying to take us back to safety. Our brain's trying to rush us and get it out of the way. That's why we'll always be tempted to speak too quickly and, and make mistakes and complicate it and tell a joke. Uh, you know, in our first line, we think we've got to do something special. But remember, we've got to slow down. We've got to do brilliant basics. And we've got to, first of all, control our physiology. So I love that idea that actually it's not about the audience putting pressure on us and we're tiny. I love that idea that actually we're the one with the information. We're the one with the useful insight that they really need. And we need to pour our information down to them because they're really going to benefit from it and they're really going to be thankful for it. They're not sitting there judging us. They're, they're sitting there waiting for the you know nugget of strategy or the financial update or whatever it might be that we're going to give. And the other thing, I guess, to understand here is that everybody feels like this. I mean, I my main job now is flying around the world and doing big keynote speeches at corporate conferences. And, you know, I might do one or two of those a week. And, uh, you know, there might be a thousand people in the audience and I absolutely get nervous and petrified. But one of the um, speaking coaches told me to consider the countdown and to embrace it. And, and when I dug a little bit more into it. Um, they were saying that, you know, when you take the book in, you'll be all excited. You're going to get a chance to go to this city and speak in front of a thousand people. It'll feel great. And then when you put the phone down, you'll probably think, oh, that's quite a big crowd. That'll that'll be interesting. And then as the days get closer, you see it looming in your diary, you know, a week out or a few days away. And then you think, oh, God, you know, do I really have to stand up and do this? I wonder what they're going to be like. I wonder what the audience is like. I wonder what the environment's going to be like. Um, will the technology work? And then you start to panic a little bit and you don't really sleep the night before the speech. And on the morning, you don't eat brilliantly and your butterflies are in your stomach because remember, you're trying to set yourself up that fight and flight response. But you need some of that adrenaline and cortisol to, to drive your performance in the short term. So you've got to embrace that timeline. 
So instead of thinking, oh God, I, you know, when the person introduces me, I'm going to want to run away to the toilet or, or run away. Um, actually, that is part of the countdown. This is normal. It's normal for me not to sleep. It's normal for me to feel a little bit uh, edgy in the morning. It's normal for me to get a bit panicky, you know, in the few minutes before I get up and speak. So almost embracing that countdown as if it's counting down to your best performance rather than counting down to impending doom. So I thought that was one very good tip about uh, speaking. And I think this is the key that the champions that I've interviewed for sure feel this fear um, 100%, but they just keep themselves calm and they keep walking forward. So we've got to get our breathing right. We've got to get our pace right. And and we'll suddenly realize that there isn't a threat there. Um, you know, we've, we're back in control and we can deliver our best performance, which will make us incredibly proud. So just a few tips from me on um, how to overcome this. I know it's a, a great question that many people will be concerned about. So I think the first thing is preparing well. And, and the first part of that with a presentation is thinking about what does the audience really need to think or do differently after you've spoken? Do they need to behave in a certain way? Do they need to go and do something different? Do they need to speak to clients in a different way? Do they need to do an administrative process in a different way? What do you actually want them to do? And is that shining through in your presentation? That, that's the first thing, so that the message is relevant, useful and, and focused. The second thing then is to rehearse well. So, you know, get your speech clear, get your presentations clear, make sure you stand up, make sure you record it either on audio or better still on video. And get a get a look at what it what it looks and feels like. And, and what I've often found is it actually looks or sounds better than you think it's gone in your head. And again, it's that inner critic shouting. So we'll we'll switch him off or her off for a bit and we'll look at what we actually see and maybe get some feedback from friends on on which parts to to emphasize or to to cut down or which bits to to focus on. And then I think part of preparation and rehearsal for me is understanding what what if scenarios. You know, have I prepared for the worst case scenario? Because those are, those are often the things that panic us and derail us in the moment. So what happens if your host says you've actually got 15 minutes less than you should have had? Maybe that's a joy. But if you've got a, an hour set piece, that can be a challenge to, to, to understand which bits to, you know, go in, in fast track mode. Maybe you, you'd start to think, well, what happens if the conference screen isn't working? Or what happens if I forget my, my laptop isn't working? So this is where we move into plan B with maybe, you know, four bullet points and two great stories on a, on a sort of card or a post-it note so that we've got a distilled summary down that we can always go back to in, in case, you know, everything breaks down. So we know we've got that and just having that in our pocket can give us great confidence. And then this idea of taking a big, slow breath. One of the um, actors that I spoke to said, it's a great idea to consider yourself like a set of bagpipes so I wasn't sure what what that meant so you know the Scottish instrument where you sort of blow into this bag you fill it up to the you know till it's absolutely bulging and only at that point then do you start to squeeze the noise out and play your tune and and what he was saying was that you should stand at the lectern arch your back take a big slow deep breath fill your lungs as as high as you possibly can I mean even try that now really fill them to the top with an arched back and then see how powerful you feel from that position to deliver that first all important line. And then again, remember Shane Warne's point, do the brilliant basics. Don't try and be funny or do something different that you've never done. Just do a brilliant entry line because once you're into your rhythm, you're probably going to find out, um, you know, that, that you're doing really well. And, and remember Lisa's point about turn the attention on to what can I give to the audience rather than, you know, they're going to judge me, I'm going to make mistakes, it's not going to work, I'm going to get sacked, they're all going to laugh at me, it's going to be terrible shame, because that's our brain just trying to keep us safe and keep us off the stage. But actually, if you deliver, if you win the, your own mental game, and if you win this inner game, and you stand up, you take a deep breath, you deliver a great first line, you deliver a speech that absolutely nails the message to your audience, then your reputation's going to go up. You're going to get so much confidence from it and you're going to look back with great pride on a brilliant performance under pressure. So we need this pressure to uh, 
um, you know, bring us up to our, our performance state, to get us on edge, to get our adrenaline up there. And one of the challenges is we, we often don't see that, um, you know, resulting pride or, or confidence that comes with the side. It's almost like ahead of the preparation, all we can see is a cliff edge that we're going to drop off. So we've got to remember that when we've been successful in the past, those feelings, what does it feel like to do something out of our comfort zone? What does it feel like to, um, you know, make a great performance? And, and those are the things that can pull us across the line to help us to step up. And also to think that, you know, actually some of the failures that we have are great learning experiences as well. You know, sometimes the things that we so fear, actually when they do happen, they're not as bad as that anyway. I mean, my meltdown in India, I can talk about here, to hopefully to help you. But really, I look back at that as a, as a crucial pivot point in my career to studying. And, and now I'm absolutely passionate about my second career, which is understanding mindset and trying to help people overcome these challenges so that they can be really successful. So I think in summary, we've really got to embrace pressure. We've got to see it as a privilege. After all, who wants one of those boring jobs where you're doing exactly the same thing every day that you can do? We need these occasional spikes of challenge to, to get us up out of our comfort zone, to do something bigger, to do something better and more exciting than staying safe. And then we've got to have this mindset to be able to commit so hard to it that we absolutely smash it and do it and have no regrets whatsoever. So that's all we've got time for. I really hope you've enjoyed today's episode and took away some really valuable tips and insights for your own mindset, your own career, and maybe even a speech that you've got coming up. I'd absolutely love it if you could help me uh, to share this across your LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram and, and even rate it where you get your uh, podcast from. If you want to tag me in, my details are in the show notes, but I'm on uh, Jeremy Snape on LinkedIn, Jeremy.Snape on Instagram and at The Sporting Edge on Twitter. Please also do send your comments and audio questions. Send me an audio file with some questions for future shows. I'd love to hear them because I want to integrate them into the show to make it really tailored to help you guys. So the more we can hear from you about the challenges you're facing and the mindset issues, I've got an incredible library of insights here that will be able to help. So send them across to hello at sportingedge.com and I'll make sure that they feature in a future show. Uh, that's it for now. We've got around a thousand of these insights in our library. So if you want to see, actually watch some of the video insights, then visit sportingedge.com. And all I can say is thank you very much for listening. Good luck and we'll see you next time.